Hello, and welcome to the Leaders of B2B podcast. On this show, we bring you interviews with leading executives at today's rapidly growing B2B tech companies. We dissect the stories, strategies, and journey of CEOs, COOs, CMOs, and more as they share their professional journey. Tune in each week for new episodes from today's leaders. This episode is brought to you by Content Allies. We help B2B tech companies build and run revenue-generating podcasts. We set you up with weekly interviews with your ideal prospects and strategic partners. You show up and have engaging conversations. We handle everything else. Learn more about launching your podcast at contentallies.com. This episode is brought to you by Ad One Zero, where we do lead to close sales execution for B2B services companies with a technology flair. If you're looking to scale your company from six figures to seven figures of revenue, talk to Ad One Zero. Hey, leaders, welcome back. This is Ledge. As you know, I am the managing partner and co-founder of Ad One Zero. Super stoked to have our guest today, Brett Barlow, CEO of Every. Brett, I always have our guests do your own hello, introduce you and the company. You can do it better than me. So uh, have at it. You know, tell us about Brett and Every. Yeah. So thanks for having me. My name is Brett Barlow, CEO of Every. I like to think of myself as kind of a serial entrepreneur myself. Haven't actually been a founder before, but uh, I've worked in startups for most of my career. Born and raised in Utah, family man. Well, we're kind of problem solvers here. If you think about it, 70% of Americans live paycheck to paycheck. There's a disruption in the exchange of value between employers and employees, and we've worked to fix that. So we're a fast payroll platform for W-2s and contractors. So dispensing with the traditional every other week type of payroll situation then, I guess in a, in a manageable way, I would imagine, because like as a business owner, I might think, oh, you know, that sounds like a lot of work. So, you know, kind of walk me through the, the paradigm shift. Yeah. So we're very conscientious that we don't want to disrupt the payroll cycle for small business owners. So we uh, have a credit facility and we pay your employees when they've earned their wages. And then we settle up at the end of a payroll cycle. So same day ACH. And for the gig economy, workers, DoorDash, Grubhub, things like that, people want to be paid when they've earned the money. Right, right. Okay. So it allows the business to maintain uh, a stable cycle that makes your bookkeeper and controller happy, but it allows the, the talent to be paid upon actually having completed the work. So really There's like a sweat equity there, right? I mean, yeah, they've right. earned the dollars, they've done the work. And if you look at traditional payroll, I don't want to call out names, but the traditional payroll cycles, say it ends on the 15th, you have to submit payroll on, say, the 12th to be paid on the 15th. Well, those companies are holding on to those dollars and making money off of the float. It's a revenue source for them. We want to get it through. We want to we pass it um, right through to the employees. And uh, we're seeing improvement in retention rates, recruiting people. It's, you know. We're new, but and it's disruptive. So we have those kind of roadblocks. You have to, like, who are you? What are you about? This is different than I've ever heard before. Can I trust you? So those are those those types of things we have to overcome. But once people get into our product, 
and their employees start feeling the benefits of being able to control their dollars, it's we make it really easy. It can sound intense every day. How would how would that work? Well, we have a built-in time clock into our platform. Employees or contractors log in and out, and they can verify that time every day. And we can pay them for verified hours the very next day. Yeah, sure, sure. And that makes probably makes a huge difference on people being able to to cover their life expenses and not having to worry about like, I mean, certainly you're intermediating to the disgustingness of the the payday loan, you know, sort of industry, which charges an outrageous amount of money or car, you know, sort of title loans and, and things of that nature for people who are trying to, you know, make ends meet. And I think probably now more than ever, got to think a paycheck to paycheck situation is is a real deal. Yeah, you know, one of the reasons why I joined the company is when I was first married, I don't know, for, for some perspective, I was doing the right things. I'd gone to college. I was, you know, well-employed. My wife was working as well. We weren't living beyond our means, but we were having a hard time making it from the first to the 15th. Things just come up. And it's a pretty lonely spot to be talking to your spouse and saying, do we have a second credit card? Do we heaven forbid, you know, consider a payday loan. Cause that's, I mean, that's a lonely place to be, to feel trapped like that financially when you feel like you're, I mean, doing the right things and we want to break that apart. Absolutely. We want to help people. Our goal is to humanize the exchange of value between employers and employees with real benefits that they can, they can take into their lives. And so you're able to approach a company and as a sales guy, I immediately go to value props and, you know, sort of selling, right? So I guess you you go to a company and say, you know, we can help you own that relationship in a facilitative and caring way that you haven't done before because everybody has to outsource payroll. Like you just, you don't do it yourself, like unless you have like three people, right? So there's always a payroll provider. And I guess the proposition there becomes... You know, I, I can help you to really make a better relationship through this thing that has been chilly and kind of just gross and everybody just puts up with it. Let, let's be honest. Nobody really loves talking about payroll. I acknowledge that. <laughs> I admit that it, it, it's hard and it's archaic and there hasn't been much, if any, innovation for I mean, decades. Why do we keep doing it the same way over and over and over in this world, the last year, all this disruption that we've had to deal with, you hear a lot of companies trying to recruit people saying, I don't know, um, unlimited PTO policy, or say we have a ping pong table or a snack wall or a gym membership or any of these things. Well, that becomes a little bit less relevant if you're all working remotely. <laughs> right, right. Or now now saying we're an all remote culture. Like, yeah, well, I mean, you, you look at you have to be. And you look at these, exactly. So that's maybe less impactful. So what, it, what can a company offer to their employees that can have real tangible benefits to their lives, create uh, loyalty, and uh, really just 30% of workers are distracted by financial issues on a weekly basis. They just There's things that come up. Life is life. So we feel like this can really help. For the psychology of the person that, that's in that situation, is it typically a timing issue more so than the quantity of the, the pay? Yeah. Look, 10% of people, no matter what you do, are going to probably 
have some challenges financially. They're making bad decisions. So it's not a, a fix all. But we, we've seen and we believe with throughout the research we've done, the conversations, this real world intel, there's a mismatch in timing from when they are receiving their pay and when bills come due. And it's just, it's inequitable how that's happening. So yeah, sure. Would people like more money? I mean, we would, I'm not saying we shouldn't, you know, people want to earn as much as they can, but people can live beyond their, or can live within their means if given more control over the dollars that they've earned when they've earned them. I mean, you should be earning the interest on your work that you've done rather than a company or a, or a payroll provider. Right. Right. It. Is it I mean, you think you when you're younger or you sell, I mean, I don't know, these examples really work, but you do a daily work throughout history and you're paid. You're compensated for the dollars that, that you've earned or the work that you've done. And it's really, I think it's a simple expectation and it will become the future. I mean, look at Venmo, Stripe, the expectations of consumers and people in the world are moving to that immediate transfer and flexibility of dollars. Sure. Sure. Obvious blockchain implications too. So, you know, that'll be fun to, to pull that. Yeah. Payroll through blockchain. We haven't, we haven't developed that, but you know, <laughs> Tesla's doing it now. So, you know, right, right, right. Yeah. A little bit too much variability. <laughs> I don't yeah. think anybody wants their payroll pegged to uh, Bitcoin just yet, but yeah, we're heading that direction. Uh, okay. So talk about your journey. I mean, you, you got into this, this company you've talked about, and I totally resonate with this because at least half of my startup experiences have been being number two, number three, number four, not founder particularly. So I, I'd love you for to just walk through the, the process of, okay, now you're CEO, but what happened before that? I've been a marketer my whole career, started in advertising, and it felt too big to me not really controllable. You're somewhat at the whims of the client, not somewhat, you are. And it typically is the first budget to be cut as an advertising budget. So I went client side and I really enjoyed small building teams having an impact. I thought my career was gonna take me to LA, New York and the, the Salt Lake entrepreneurial uh, world community has just exploded over the last 20 years. So I've done a tour of duty is what I kind of say with startups here in Utah, Ancestry.com, Omniture before their acquisition by Adobe. And most recently I was running digital marketing at a headphone brand Skullcandy where I was in first, like first 20, 30 employees. And we took that public in 2011. And then I joined a SaaS company, Pluralsight, as CMO in 2013. So that's I mean, consumer headphone brand to B2B SaaS digital or marketing leader. Not your typical path, but I think about marketing in a B2B setting as not really B2B, but B2H is what I call it, business to human. Okay, okay. So bringing the brand elements that I developed through parts of my career and infusing that into digital and in-person experiences that can create demand and fill your sales funnel on the, on the B2B side. Well, I was going to ask, I've, I've talked to a lot of 
brand marketer industry, you know, sort of B2C types who have struggled to go down to where, you know, I'm sorry, you don't have a hundred million dollar budget anymore. And, you know, now like to bootstrap marketing when you have that sort of big brand budget behind you before, you know, startups are totally different kind of in that way, many times brand less, you know, how do you, how do you develop a brand at, you know, a place where you're kind of like, well, I don't actually have any budget anymore, you know, so you're, you're really putting that together in a scrappy kind of way. Well, I think brand gets a bad name for the reasons that you said it's unquantifiable. It takes millions of dollars. You don't have to be Coca-Cola to have a strong brand. You don't have to be known in every household, which is kind of a connotation when you say brand awareness is overall awareness. You need to resonate and be relevant and solve problems for your buyer. And so that, you know, being thoughtful about what are the pain points that you solve? What is that product market fit? And creating what becomes an emotional connection with those buyers because you're making their lives better. You're making their lives easier. They're then telling their peers and their friends because, hey, if you found some success, I think people inherently want to share good news. They want to tell people, this is working for me. And if you can do that, if you can solve the problems in an affordable, easy way for people, they will help you tell your story. And that doesn't take millions of dollars. That takes being very thoughtful in the way that you build your product and you don't have to build a product. I think where people get in, in SaaS environments, they feel like they have to go really broad in order to capture all of the buyers in a particular business. It takes discipline to focus on maybe one buyer to start. Like, what is the persona of the person that we can help the most right now? If you well, can get to that person, because it, what that happens, that creates velocity in your sales funnel because more people are finding um, the benefits out of your product. If you don't do that and you get a little bit more splintered, you end up with edge case product requirements and needs because like, hey, we could get this $100,000 deal if we just added this feature. And then you start having those product disruptive conversations that doesn't let that team really create momentum and the flywheel effect in the product development. So discipline is where you have to start and really understanding who your product fits with best and, and going after that. And that's hard because that means you're saying no to some deals. Absolutely. Yeah. Niching is so important. And for everybody that ever drank the, you know, sort of first mover, winner takes all type of disposition for SaaS, this is the opposite of that. And this is something definitely worth, you know, paying attention to. So, and and, and this, this is a case for a service business for anybody. Like if you niche to the point where somebody can look at it and go, that's me. You know, I really think that's the most important thing. And uh, and that's uncomfortable. It is as very a, uncomfortable. As a it's founder, un- you, you have yeah. to get to the point where you're like, I don't think there's like a hundred people that are like that. And yeah. how do and I it even It doesn't happen them? overnight either, right? So you're, you're kind of testing the waters here and there. And yeah, it can be really, it can be challenging. I wouldn't say that it has to be niche from from uh, maybe a common description of it that feels really small. It's just thoughtful and consistent in who you're speaking to 
And that can be a total addressable market of billions, right? It can still be really big, but you're just being um, very purposeful and deliberate with who you're going after. Right, right. I, I often meet, you know, marketing CEOs and they're sort of maybe like half, I don't know, 40% marketing CEOs and like 40% sales CEOs. And there's some product CEOs. And then once in a while, like every once in a while, you see meet an operator CEO. But I'm always curious, you know, like when you evaluate your role from, you know, you kind of got on the carousel from the marketing horse and, and you stayed there and you expand to brand and you probably get into product and things of that nature. But there's a bunch of stuff that exists elsewhere that you at some point had to realize I must form a team to fill gaps. And I'm always interested in that process of how executive teams grow up, you know, as, as companies yeah. start to scale. I can share that story with you. The, I would say the founder, the person who idea every was, is a guy named Ron Ross. Ron Ross uh, ran finance at Skullcandy when I was on the marketing side. So I've known him for 15 years and we've have a really great relationship. Um, I mentioned that we took Skullcandy public. We at one point were the most shorted stock on NASDAQ. So before Reddit was taking care of things like that. <laughs> yeah, that's uncomfortable. If you yeah. like, that's really uncomfortable. And you can, you really start to understand or you see when things are hard, how people behave. And, you know, their backs are against the wall, the politics arise, silos, blaming those things. And that happens in a business when you're having challenging things, but it doesn't have to. If you're operating with trust with people that are around you um, and you believe in them, um, you can come out in a healthy, like we can do hard things. It doesn't right. have to be antagonistic. And I have that relationship with Ron. I trust him. I know exactly what he's like when he's under the gun. So we left Skull Candy. He became the CFO of a company called Team, which are is kind of a scheduling software for businesses. And they exited and sold to WeWork. Then I went to Pluralsight, uh, ended up six years after that taking Pluralsight public in 2018, and then stayed for another year and a half. And then I decided to leave and our paths met again. So Ron, to, so part of the, like I came up through marketing, like I'm understanding your question. I know what I don't know. Right. <laughs> I know. But how do you, how do you know what you don't know? Cause well, I think 25 that... years of failing at different things <laughs> and, you know, I know what I'm really good at. And I, and I have a set of tools that I believe I'm, I, I'm good at, I'm really good at, but there are other parts that I maybe not as experienced in, or it doesn't come naturally to me. And Ron is that kind of yin and yang to me. Mm -hmm. So operations, finance background, um, where we complement each other really well. So after I had left Pluralsight, um, well, while I was still there, he asked me to join his board. So I helped him get the company off the ground as a board member. And then when I left Pluralsight, he asked me to come join him as the CEO. Right. So I look at it as a real partnership between us and others on the executive team. I don't, I, there, here's a learning. I, I think there's pressure for CEOs to feel like they have to have all the answers. The buck stops here and the buck does stop ultimately with me, but I don't have to have all the answers. I know that. 
and I trust the people that are running our product, our go-to-market programs, finance, and operations. I have good people around me that that I trust. So that's kind of how I ended up here, and and it's where I joined, or I I feel the most reward from solving problems with groups of humans that I can learn from. How do you how do you build and maintain that? problem solving culture you know i often find that successful companies and founders that that we talk to are able to say you know over the course of some number of years and i and i think even before the current company like when you when you bring along those groups of you know sort of the co-founder and long-term relationship type of stuff you already have cooked in the back of your head like this is what we're going to build someday we just don't kind of know what it is or what it looks like but you you can pick up that uh, shared cultural kind of mind reading vibe and then you have to grow your team and teach other people to do it. And that's even like, that's harder because they don't know how to speak your, you know, sort of weird partner language. And, you know, you know what I'm saying? So like, I'm just curious, like, how do you think about that? Like propagating that problem solving empathetic type of, of thing there, which is interesting because it's both your brand and your, your company culture. And I, I think that's a good inconsistent. Yeah. One of the first things that, that we did, uh, you know, 10 people, I was joining their offsite executive offsites before I joined. And one of the first things that we established was what are our, what's our mission vision values? What is there? Is there a common language that we can share that doesn't sound corny and it doesn't sound overly corporate, but it's authentic. So we looked around at people in the organization and behaviors that we valued and what we want to be, um, certainly mistakes that we've all collectively made in our business. And we created a set of, of values that aren't long in, in nature, but there's just a commonality of like one of them I'll share with you is um, be direct, but be kind. I mean, it's pretty straightforward. In Utah, we tend to, we're very, very, very nice. We're very nice to people. And sometimes that creates a, yes, you agree in a situation, but then you leave a meeting and you're not really in agreement. It, you didn't really want to hurt somebody's feelings. So we want to be direct, but be kind. Like you don't have to be a jerk. We, I have a strict no a-hole policy. We don't want to have <laughs> jerks. <laughs> you know, we don't want to have that. So that's just an example of some commonality of language that we use throughout the business. I think that one of my key responsibilities is to create clarity and transparency. So if I can say and identify with our executive team, what's the top of the mountain that we're trying to go climb and then empowering each of our individual departments and groups to do their part, they choose the road. They can go up the mountain with a four wheeler. They can, they can run it. They can, you can motorcycle mountain bike. you choose the path. But in a certain time frame, we need you to bring your team here. So they have that autonomy and that trust to do those things and know that I believe in them. But we all know the things that we have to do to be successful. And we, and we work on that every week in our executive meetings and our, we have regular offsites as well. Do you use a particular framework for quarterly goal management or, you know, offsites or anything of, of that nature? I often find people use different, you know, operating systems or different sort of paradigms. Do you, do you have one that you, you like, or you make your own or. 
there's certainly a bit of my own flavor to these things, but I've really enjoyed Patrick Lencioni. There's a book called The Advantage that I've read and, and gone through that, you know, that's necessarily novel. People, I'm sure a lot of people have read that. But trust is a framework and you build up with communication, repetition and clarity that um, it doesn't have to be really heavy. Like you, you get Google's OKRs and they're across the entire business and that's highly quantifiable and trackable. And that's a way to do it. I like to be more agile and, and, and provide opportunities to pivot as needed, but we have to have a common framework of how we interact with each other. Like if you say you're going to do something, be accountable, do it. I'm not going to tell you what time to come in the morning. Just do what you say you're going to do. So there's a difference. Like, you know, I'm not trying to micromanage. I want to empower people to do their best work, but they have to have a buy-in or, a collective commitment to go climb that mountaintop. Yeah, absolutely. I'm sure somewhere in your journey, you've had had the the dubious honor of telling somebody that they'll be very successful, you know, somewhere else. So it comes up a lot that you know, and, and I've had the experience, and I I know this every time you let somebody go for you know a reason of not fitting, et cetera, et cetera, that you you really wish you did it sooner. So I'd love to pick into this, this topic. Cause I, I think that it's such a good learning for, for founders. Yeah. Hire slow and fire fast. Be very thoughtful in the way the types of people and the skill sets and the problems that you need to have resolved to bring people into the business and not just adding people and problems. Cause bloat in a business gets people lost in the shuffle and it's, can cause confusion and just sometimes just poor behavior. So being really thoughtful about the people that you're bringing in, you know, how do you fire people? I, I hate that. I, I don't like those conversations at all because I value personal relationships with people. So typically it's someone that I know something about their personal life and it's, you know, it's challenging. What I try to do is if the time comes when you have to part ways with an employee, I really try hard to make that so it's not a surprise. That's not coming out of the blue. So some consistent conversations and coaching of what's working, what isn't working. So when you arrive at the point where, listen, we've, we've been talking about this. This just isn't going to work. Hopefully they under, they feel the same way. And it's just, look, let's, you know, we can stay friends or not. But you understand why we're making this decision instead of just all of a sudden they're out of work and they're completely caught off guard. That doesn't feel good to me. Yeah, right, right. Absolutely. And uh, so you guys facilitate a great deal of flexibility in the type of arrangement that an employer could have with employee. Now, you know, it sort of gets bifurcated, like ultimately on a legal sense from your W-2 or your 1099. You know, we like to, we don't like to have gray areas in these things in America, but you know, how do you embrace different types of, of working when you're building a company? So I, my example is, you know, I, I've done the thing where I've had the, you know, carry the real payroll and everybody had to be on payroll and, and then I switched the other way and I said, well, you know, like if we build a group of people and they're awesome, who cares how we we pay them and let's do all contracts because everybody's happy with 1099. So I just curious how it 
you've now enabled people to, you know, treat everybody differently. If you're dog fooding, how do you, how do you do your, your payroll and your human management? We have W2s in our, in our company, but as we are uh, growing and trying to scale, we're not exactly sure. We're figuring out where we need to flex as far as hiring new people. So we work with contractors in that sense of how does this, are these providing the services and the value that we need to the business? Okay, we should probably invest there to, to, to bring them on board. I'd say 80% of our employees are being paid every single day. They're salaried employees. They, get, they can choose daily, weekly, biweekly, monthly if they want, or if they just like every two weeks, you can do it. We have a cash out button in our app. And so for the days they work, they can get paid that same day for the days they work. So we, we do that within our own company, but mostly it's about choice. It's not about forcing people to do something. It's about letting them know, look, we have an office. You can work from home or you can come into an office. We trust you to pick the working situation that works best for you. For example, our sales team, they're spending more and more time together in an office. Our product and engineering teams, they're working hard and doing really well just being in their basement and writing code and, and they're more effective that way and getting together less frequently. And so each person has flexibility of how they work and, and when where they want to work, but also how they want to be paid. Yeah. What have you learned from your own folks that has made it into the product? Any, any um you know, direct feedback that maybe you didn't get from the marketplace that you know, now you're dog fooding or you're using the thing. I and mean, I think that's like what everybody hopes they can do for their product. Every single day. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we have our, our, you know, we use Slack as a tool and we have different channels for product feedback and how they're experiencing it, be it onboarding communications to how do I get my W2 or in-app messaging or this payment was, you know, you, you can't mess up on payroll. We have a zero error rate. So it's the pay that's working, but it's, are there improvements to the experience and how we're communicating the UI and things like that? That happens constantly. Yeah, there would be a cost of entry to not screwing up payroll in your, yeah. <laughs> your industry. Yeah. And yes. for a payroll admin, somebody in the finance role, you cannot mess that up for them. Mm -mm. People no. knocking on their cubicle or, you know, like, you know <laughs> yeah. it's a very personal thing, pay. Yeah. You know, it's a very right. personal thing. Now, I love how you, you said that. It's like, choose how you work, choose how you get paid. Yeah. And, I, in that sense, that value prop makes you know a ton of sense to my brain. It's like oh, I've never been able to choose how I got paid. There's just you know, really no reason for it. It's that people haven't. Well, there are ACH banking rails and rules that are now available to people, and we're built on that same day ACH. So the opportunity wasn't there, you know, five years ago. So we're definitely a business that is born out of innovation and really expectations of the consumer. As I mentioned, the Venmos and the, the stripes of the world, PayPal, it's just where the world is going. So we believe we're building a product where the puck is going, so to speak. And we have some, some awareness and some trust that we have to build with, can, with our customers. But look, we launched our product in August of 2019. We're processing tens of millions of dollars of payroll, tens of millions of dollars. 
You know, we're our client base is in the hundreds. Over the year, we've had you know great growth, and uh, we're really excited for what's coming next. Yeah, it's it's a really you know compelling idea. Is there any uh, upper or lower limit to the size of company that would work with Every? Well, there's certainly a profile of worker that is more interested in fast pay. If you're making $200,000 a year and you're on salary and you're, you know, you might like the idea of a cash out if something happens, but it's less acute. But if you're an hourly worker, if you're a gig contractor or just a contractor in general, um, maybe lower salaried workers or professionals, there's certainly kind of a profile of worker and those reside in verticals. Certain, I mean, there's a lot of verticals, but I've mentioned gig, gig platform, gig marketplaces, you know, there's call centers, there's sales commissions. So there's, there's areas that we're focusing, but you ask, I mean, we could, there's, we have one company that's a thousand workers. I think 1500 is the largest we have right now, but it could go higher than that. We're kind of focusing, I would say 50 to 200 employees size is probably where our sweet spot is. Well, I just like to get that stuff exposed because if somebody's listening, then I want to get that value for you. (laughs) Right. Absolutely. Well, but I mean, I love this, you know, this whole thing has sort of been futurist, like skate to the, where, you know, where the puck's going to be. And, you know, so I don't have too many questions about the future, but you know, what's on your mind for, you know, this, this year, uh, you know, it's, we're all emerging from the fog, you know, a little bit. So what, what are you thinking about as, as CEO, you know, for what's next? Well, I've realized over the last year that you really just don't know what's going on in people's personal lives. You just don't know. And so I think if, as professionals, I like to think that we lead with empathy. We try to, it's not, it, it's this exchange of value, right? Like I need certain work and projects done from employees, but I want them to know that in turn, they're going to be compensated for that, that they're cared about as human beings and that we're going to be flexible and work with them because it's a partnership that we're creating. And I, th- I just think that's, that's really important. It feels like the economy is, is, you know, kind of coming back on its feet. My, I'm seeing stimulus checks for certain people. I'm happy for them that those are coming for them. Um, but the empathy side of things and just providing people with options, both the, the people that work for you and that you serve, I think it's something to, to really focus on. That's awesome. Well, if people want to get in touch with you directly or the company, how, how do you prefer that happen? Every, E-V-E-R-E-E dot com. Again, Brett Barlow, brett.barlow at Every. And uh, really appreciate, first of all, you reaching out and, and us having, being able to have this conversation. And thank you. Yeah, thanks so much for the insights. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoyed the show. You can see the show notes and more links from today's episode at leadersofb2b.com.